It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I just looked in the back. My wife is, uh, is here for the message, and usually she's not but <laughs> because she's doing children's stuff. And uh, she put a lot of pressure on me for this message. She's like, this is the one time <laughs> in a while that I'm going to sit in service. This better be good. I, I don't know if it will be. Um, but let's pray, and let's pray that God would make even a mediocre sermon great in our hearts. Let's pray. God, we thank you just for this time, and uh, we know that your word is something that's, uh, you know, oftentimes we say it's true, but uh, we also need to see that it's beautiful, that it's good for our hearts, that it's good for our souls, uh, that your word needs to be the very thing that nourishes us, that feeds us, uh, that fills us with life. And uh, many of us come from, uh, I guess, different places in terms of uh, how we're feeling and what we've experienced this week. Uh, but no matter where we're coming from, uh, we do pray that during this time our eyes would be open, our hearts would be opened uh, to receive. Uh, we want to take on a posture of receiving, uh, a posture of, uh, I guess as Martin Luther said, we want to take on a posture of beggars, and we want to beg you, God, to bestow and shower your wonderful grace upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned in the announcements, what we're doing just for the last uh, two weeks is we're looking at a little part of our vision, which is we want to build bridges of belonging. And what that entails is we want to build a kind of community where people can come, where people can belong through friendship, through hospitality, and things like that. And if you were here last week, I talked about a lot of the trends that are taking place in American culture right now. Uh, things that, I guess, people who study this stuff, like sociologists and social scientists, are following. But basically seeing a trend of the disintegration of community life and the growth of the problem of loneliness. And what we want to do as a church in our little tiny, 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 tiny corner of uh, New York is we want to, I guess, rage against that trend. And what we want to do is we want to create community where people can belong. Uh, we want to build community. And so what we're planning to do over the next couple of weeks, we're, uh, I guess, in the planning stages. We want to plan uh, community groups, which we did in the past, but we're going to return to again. And these community groups are going to meet uh, about twice a month on Sundays. 
and it's going to be based on geographic location. So our encouragement to you is wherever you live, find a community group in which it is close to where you live. And I think the first step is what we announced today is we want to ask people to volunteer their homes, to open up their homes and say, people can meet uh, in my home. And again, that doesn't mean leading a group, but it simply means uh, just exercising hospitality, allowing people to gather and creating space for people to gather. Uh, last week, we looked at the importance importance of meeting together. Today what I want to do is I want to look at the importance of growing together. Uh, there was this illustration that I mentioned last week that I thought it was just such a great illustration that I figured I'd repeat it here as well. And uh, I heard it from Tim Keller, but he says there is a difference between an aggregation and a congregation. An aggregation is like a bag of marbles where you may be uh, gathered in the same bag, but there is no interconnectedness between the individual marbles. Essentially, each marble is independent of each other. Uh, a congregation, on the other hand, is more like a bunch of grapes, where there is organic connection to one another. So, uh, attending a church service and, I guess, leaving and not knowing anybody and not having any real relationship, that's more like an aggregation. Uh, there is this uh, professor who teaches at MIT. Her name is Sher Cheryl Turkle, and she wrote a book called uh, Alone Together. And in that book, she's talking about basically the consequences uh, that technology has had on our human reactions and our human, not reactions, our human interactions. And basically, she's saying we're getting used to being a people that maybe we might be together, but essentially we're alone together, hence the title of the book. And... Uh, uh, here's what she means by that. You know, during Christmas, I was invited to preach uh, at a retreat for junior high kids. So it was like sixth graders to eighth graders. And that is not my wheelhouse. I'm not great in terms of preaching to that age group. That's, I would say, the hardest age group to preach to. Uh, but it was, I, you know, I had a good time preaching to this age group. And, uh, you know, at the retreat, uh, one of the rules is you can't have your smartphone. So in the beginning of the retreat, they take away all the phones. I didn't even know people that age all had smartphones, but apparently everybody had a smartphone, and they would take it away during the retreat. And it was so fascinating because on the last day of the retreat, uh, the last scheduled thing, they started giving all the kids their phones back, and literally they were like all sitting in this huge group on their phones and not paying attention to one another. I just I wanted to take a picture of it. I was like, whoa! And uh, it was like uh, you know they were uh, drug addicts who finally got their fix, <laughs> and they were just like. Like some people were going on their social media, some people were playing games, and you know, I thought I would like try to mess with some people and be a little bit annoying. So I, I would like go up to like these uh, these little guys and I'd be like, "Hey, so what you doing? Uh, what are you doing? Uh, what's going on? What do you what do you do on your phone? What game are you playing?" And I kid you not, he did not hear me. <laughs> he, he completely ignored. Me. He was like playing like Clash of Clans, and if you've ever played that game, you know, uh, you got to catch up, right? You got to catch up and <laughs> I don't know, do your do your winning and build your stuff. <coughs> now, before you judge these junior high kids, come on, let's be honest, that's us as well, right? If we were to go into any of our homes and uh, maybe see uh, how you and your spouse, if you have a spouse, spend time together, maybe how you and your roommate spend time together, uh, what are you doing? You're probably, mm -mm, right? You're in bed, mm -mm. That's That's us as well. That's called an aggregation. And that's going to become more and more uh, prevalent, if not already very prevalent today. And the problem with aggregations is that they are not meaningful communities, which is why 
You can actually be part of an aggregation. You can be part of many aggregations. You can have thousands of social media friends and yet still be lonely. On the other hand, we talked about community as a bunch of grapes. Every member is organically connected to one another. That's what it's supposed to mean to be a church. That's what a church is supposed to be. That's the kind of community that we have to build here. You even see that church is meant to be interconnected in this way in the passage that we're going to look at today. Look at the end of uh, verse 19. Paul is telling the Ephesians this. He's saying that you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, and then jump to verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now look at those pictures for a minute, that imagery for a few minutes. That is all meant to describe what the church is. You have a picture of a citizen belonging to a nation. You have a picture of a household, a family. And then you have a picture of a building where every member is interconnected and joined together to grow into a holy temple. But if you notice these pictures, there is this uh, progression in intensity um, with respect to our relationship with God. Because you see, if you're a citizen, then yes, you and maybe the king live in the same geographic area, the same nation as you. If you're a member of a household, you and your father would live in the same house as you. If you are the temple, what it's saying is this, God dwells in you. God dwells in you. But there's also here an intensity in terms of relationship with other believers because you see, as a citizen, you share the same political interests with a nation or the nat maybe political is wrong. You share the same national interests with the nation. As a member of the same household, you share the same familial interests with your family. And as a member of the same temple, you know, there's probably no good earthly analogy to describe the depth of interconnectedness that there is supposed to be there. And I want you to keep these pictures in mind as you think about um, the community that we are trying to build here today. And what I want to do is I want to ask this passage two just basic questions. And the first is this, what is the goal of community? And second, what does it take in to get there? Okay, what is the goal and what does it take to get there? So first, let's look at the goal. Uh, if the church is organic, then uh, like most organic things, it should grow, right? <laughs> organic things grow. That growth can, of course, be measured in uh, a couple of ways. Uh, it can be measured by growth in size. It can be measured by growth in holiness. And that's usually how churches measure growth. Uh, how many people are being added to the body of Christ? That's a question of numerical growth. Uh, are people forsaking sin and repenting and forming their hearts around the things of God? That's a question of growing in holiness. These are the kinds of questions that we ask uh, to measure our growth as a church body. And these are good questions to ask. But I think there's another aspect of growth that we see here that maybe we sometimes neglect, and it is this, growth in unity. Growth in unity. And for that, we would ask questions like this. Are people growing closer together? Uh, are people walking together? Are people's lives meshed together? Do people love each other as a family does? Are people reconciling with one another after there's been an offense? Are people confessing sin to one another and forgiving one another? Or are people just pretty content going about their own individual lives by themselves? Are people running away from the good kind of confrontation 
and building these invisible walls between one another. Now, depending on how we answer these questions is going to determine whether we are actually growing together. And emphasis on together. We tend to focus on our individual and our personal growth. But the imagery here of community actually calls us to focus on corporate growth, communal growth. Are we growing together? That only happens when there is this deep oneness in community. Now, here's the thing. Here's what was happening in the early church. Uh, there were a lot of divisions. Uh, one of the primary divisions were divisions between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Uh, Christianity was, you know, it came from the Jewish faith, and it was originally thought to be a sect of Judaism. Uh, the early governments actually looked at Christianity as a sect of Judaism, so I think in the early days, Christians were kind of grandfathered into some of the benefits between the Roman government and the Jewish people. But eventually what happened was in the expansion of the gospel, it went beyond Jewish people and it went to nations, to non-Jewish nations, to the Gentiles. And bringing Gentiles and Jewish people together is not an easy task. Jews had a certain way of life. They practiced things like circumcision. They didn't eat certain kinds of foods. You may not realize it, but the, some of the biggest theological problems in the New Testament that people like Paul had to address were questions relating to the merger of Jewish people and Gentile people. For example, you read Acts 15. Uh, all these church leaders gather together, and they're discussing some of these issues because it was dividing the church. They're saying, uh, can we do this? Can we eat this? Uh, how important is circumcision? And Paul addresses these kind of issues in his letters as well in places like Romans and Galatians, but he also addresses it here in the book of Ephesians. Now, if we're going to talk about the importance of unity, which I think runs through all throughout the book of Ephesians, I think we also have to talk about diversity because without diversity, there is no unity, but all there is is really uniformity. Uh, in our culture, everyone wants diversity, right? At least in New York, that's what everybody says. I want diversity. But I think we actually have to be a little bit more sophisticated in terms of how we think about diversity because uh, my opinion is people usually want a counterfeit form of diversity or a consumer version of diversity. Here's what I mean. Uh, I read this fascinating book uh, for the class I was taking, and uh, it was a book by a couple of sociologists, and they're basically looking at the practices of this particular church in Chicago uh, in terms of how they are pursuing racial diversity. Okay? This is an urban church led by a white pastor, was about 75% white, and built into their core values was... Diversity. From the very onset, they say we want to be a diverse church, a racially diverse church. But here's what these sociologists observed in terms of how the church approached diversity. They approached diversity as a consumer good. In other words, diversity itself served as this practical utility to draw in the religious consumer. Uh, in urban settings, diversity is cool, diversity is hip, and therefore, you want to say, uh, I'm diverse or we're diverse uh, to be able to attract the young urban dweller. Now, when diversity is tied to consumerism, uh, the problem is this. Uh, it means you only appreciate differences, uh, whether it's in culture, whether it's in people, as long as it benefits you. Uh, it's a little like saying, you know, when people say, I love New York because of its diversity, I think what people really mean is, I love New York because... Uh, of, of its diversity, meaning I get to try a lot of different kinds of foods, right? <laughs> a lot of ethnic cuisines. 
But you know, once diversity starts to impinge on your preferences, then it becomes a problem. So in this particular church, the sociologists, they're observing, uh, what they would do is they would use black congregate members and place them in these visible roles. So they would have them serve as ushers, they would have them serve as uh, musicians to display, hey, we're diverse, we're a diverse church. But then, at a meeting, when a black congregant member suggested, hey, why don't we incorporate some black gospel music into our worship, diversity became a problem, right? Because it impinges on the preferences of, I guess, whatever the majority culture was in that particular church. Mm, I do think churches rightfully see there is a problem uh, in churches in terms of there is segregation, right? Uh, that is a problem, but I think framing the problem as a lack of diversity is probably not the right way to frame it. I think the right way to frame the problem of uh, this problem is actually a lack of unity. There is no unity. Uh, and the reason I think that is because that's how largely Paul frames the problems between the Jews and the Gentiles. You know, there's a place in Ephesians 4 where Paul talks about unity, and here's what he says. He says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He is talking about unity here, but notice the characteristics that he lists in order to get unity. First, you need humility. You need gentleness. You need patience. You need forbearance and love. You need an eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, I wish I could expound on each of those characteristics, and if you have time, it's really worth considering and thinking about and meditating upon. But just from a big picture, as you look at those kind of qualities, you know what that tells me about unity? It's hard. It's hard to maintain. When people say, uh, you know, I, I hear this all the time, when people say, you know, the problem with Christianity is there's so much division. There's all these denominations and, and all these things. Uh, you know, I usually say, you're actually right. That is a problem with Christianity, but it's, a, it's a more of a universal problem than you think because you see division everywhere. There's divisions within families. There's divisions within politics. There's divisions within races and genders. Divisions in your companies, in your work groups. There's divisions in, on teams, in friendships. There's even divisions in other faiths as well, like in Islam and Judaism. They all have their different uh, sects and their different, I guess, denominations. And yes, there are also divisions within Christianity. And so I would say division is probably a universal problem that infects all people. And our natural default mode is to divide. That's our, I think that's our default mode. We are people who divide because that's what ultimately what sin does. Sin divides, which means it requires a supernatural act of God in order to unite. That leads to our second point. What does it take to reach the goal of community? Well, first, let me say this. It's not contingent upon the people in this room. Uh, it's going to take more than that. Uh, the people in this room, we are not actually powerful enough to create unity. It takes an act of God. In this passage, uh, in the passage that I read in Ephesians 4, uh, you, know, you should notice Paul says that we should be eager to maintain the unity in the Spirit. And because he says we should maintain it, I guess the uh, assumption is it's already been created and therefore our calling is to maintain that which has been created for us. And 
that actually, I think, gets to the heart of this letter and maybe even to the heart of the Christian message. Now, uh, you know, what's, what's a little bit challenging about Paul's writing is his sentences are really dense and his sentences are really long. And <laughs> you see it here. So let me, uh, let me try to maybe do it in a, a smaller chunks. But look at with me starting at verse 13. And he says this, uh, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What is he saying here in this really, really wonderful and rich uh, passage. He's saying this. The cross, his action, his creative action through his death and resurrection, the cross is ultimately what has broken down dividing walls of hostility. Why? Because the cross recreated a new humanity so that there would be no more separation between Jew and Gentile. In Christ, all believers belong to the same nation, to the same household, and to the same spiritual temple. Unity is something that has been objectively completed. It is a spiritual reality, and it has been accomplished by the person and work of Jesus Christ. If Satan is somebody who divides, Jesus is somebody who unites. Jesus united us to God. Jesus unites us to one another. And that means the reality is this. Uh, I don't know why you come here. Uh, maybe some of you feel like more plugged in. Maybe some of you don't feel as plugged in. Wherever you are, it's okay. But here's, here's the objective spiritual reality. If you are a believer, if you share the same faith in Jesus Christ, you actually are more united to, let's say, somebody uh, who grew up in Nigeria or somebody who grew up in Brazil and shares the same faith as you, even if their backgrounds are completely different than you. That's the spiritual objective reality. That is the power of the work of Christ. You may not feel that way, but that's what Jesus accomplished. And so if that is actually what Jesus did, then the question that you and I have to wrestle with is this, then why don't we see it? Why don't we always see it, right? Why do we see divided community sometimes? Why do we see people in church only warm to and welcoming towards uh, certain kinds of people? Why, uh, why do we see, uh, you know, why are we not living in accordance with this spiritual reality? It's because we don't believe it. It's because we don't understand who we are. Uh, let me just give you an overview of Paul's ethics. How do we think about ethics in Paul's thinking? If he says this, uh, be holy, right, and gives that command, you guys should be holy. That's actually from First Peter, but let's assume Paul says that. Do you know why he's saying that? Because you are holy in Christ. It's like saying this, you're an adult, therefore act like an adult. You shouldn't act like a child. You know, the only time my wife calls me pastor <laughs> It's when I'm, not do when I'm acting in a way that's not consistent with being a pastor, right? <laughs> when I say something that's uh, not edifying, she's like, okay, pastor, <laughs> right? 
Why does she do that? Well, that's, I guess that's my identity, my vocational identity, but I'm not acting consistent with it, right? You know, for Paul, command or exhortation follows identity. Who are you? In Christ. Church, you are the people of God united to one another, created into a new humanity, bound together by something deeper than common experiences, by something deeper than even uh, like physical blood. You are bound together by a common faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, act like it. Act like it. You ever see that movie, uh, Remember the Titans, with uh, Denzel Washington? Great, great sports movie. One of my favorite sports movies, I think. Uh, it's about a football team, and uh, they have to deal with integration between uh, black students and white students. And it, was, you know, it took place in an era where there were separate schools for uh, the black community and separate schools for the white community. And because of uh, changes in the law, schools were forced to integrate, and that affected a football team. So now you have a football team where... You have black players and white players, and they're forced to be on the same team and play together. In the beginning, they didn't play well together uh, because they didn't play as a team. There was no unity. But even though they didn't act like it, the fact of the matter was they were on the same team. They shared wins. They didn't lose, but if they had lost, they would share losses as well. They won together. They lost together. And even though it didn't look like it, and even though it didn't feel like it, and even though there was a lot of turmoil there, they were still on the same team. That's the objective reality of it, right? Eventually, what they had to learn to do is they had to learn to play in accordance with who they were in terms of their identity. They had to realize, you know what? We're on the same team, and uh, we need to act like we're on the same team because we're on the same team. I think that's what the church is like, and that's something that we have to understand. Um, you know, uh, in the West especially, I think churches tend to have this uh, competitive uh, spirit with one another. But it should not be. We are on the same team. We are united because of Jesus' redemptive, reconciling work on the cross. And when we don't act as if we are united, what we are doing is we are betraying the very identity that has been purchased for us by the blood of Christ. You know, the, the, uh, the only thing that can really hurt the church, you know the only thing that could hurt Good News Church? It's not persecution. It's not financial stability or instability. It's not the lack of uh, people or the lack of human resources or people to serve. Get this, even Satan himself cannot hurt the church. You know the one thing that can hurt the church? The church itself. <gasps> How? Divided kingdom cannot stand. Divided church cannot stand either, friends. That becomes very obvious when you look at the history of the church. You know how the church bears witness to the love of Christ? By being one. By being united. By being interconnected. I didn't get to preach on this. Um, Jesus' prayer in John 17, when I did the series on prayer, I was initially going to, but uh, I didn't. But one of the things that Jesus prays, and think about this, one of the things that Jesus prays before he goes to the cross is this. He prays in John 17, 22 to 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Uh, 
so that, purpose clause, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. How does a world know the love that Jesus Christ has shown? Jesus is praying for it right here. It's through the unity, the oneness of his people. You know, love, uh, powerful word, but sometimes, you know, we use it too abstractly. Uh, in American culture especially, we uh, overly sentimentalize love. Love is probably a little bit more concrete than we think of it. If you are a believer, how are you going to obey the command to love neighbor, to grow in obedience and love? Uh, you only obey in that command when there are actually people to love and you tangibly love people, right? Uh, it's not just this like abstract concept, oh, I, I should love people in general, but no, particular people we are called to love. And guess what? It's not just those whom we get along with, but it's those that we may not get along with. It's those we may not feel comfortable with. It's those who may be different from us. If you have any interest in following Jesus and obeying him, you have to be part of a community where you can exercise and practice love for one another. And the wonderful thing is this, and I, I actually think in the West, uh, the church has a wonderful missional <laughs> opportunity uh, to share and to show the love of Christ, especially when community life is disintegrating. The church has a wonderful opportunity to say this. It's supposed to be different. And in Christ, you belong. You belong to a common nation, but better than that, you belong to a common family, but better than that, you are part of the very spiritual temple of God where his presence dwells. And that is what we are meant to display to the world, friends. So, we're going to try to make this a little easier and manageable and, uh, you know, make it... Uh, address some of the obstacles and partaking in community life. But to the degree that you can, you got to be part of a community. Uh, if you have faith in Christ, mm, I don't think there's any way around it. <coughs> Otherwise, you're living in disobedience. Uh, being part of the church in Scripture uh, doesn't look like attending a service and piecing out and not getting to know anybody. Uh, being the church is like being a bunch of grapes, and you got to be deeply involved, uh, not in everybody's life, but at least in a couple people's lives, and uh, seek to love them. So I urge you, uh, this will be the last message on community. Um, I won't get to urge you again. Uh, when sign-ups come, make it a priority, because it's that important. Let's pray together.